Thank you, Skylar, and welcome to Emmaus Way. My name is Ben. I'm on staff here. We're glad you're here. Um, before we ever get very far into the service, we always hear from our kids, and I think we're going to start that tonight um, with an announcement from one of our children's teachers, Joel. Hello, everyone. Um, I just have a quick announcement in case anyone's interested. Um, I am also the director of Faith Formation Four children at Immaculate Conception Church and Immaculate Catholic School, and I will be doing a, um, a gathering and a kind of tutorial on Saturday um, at Immaculate Conception. In case anyone would want, in case anyone would want to come, um, I'll mostly be focusing on um, the older child, so ages nine to twelve, um, that we work with, and kind of where they're at developmentally and how they relate to God and the program that we use. Um, but I'll also be kind of reviewing in general child development and their relationship with God. Um, and we'll have some prayer time and fellowship and pizza. Um, so if anyone's interested, you don't have to be a volunteer, but I thought it might be helpful now that, uh, the volunteers are with me and the older kids. Um, if you want to learn more about how we do things and why we do things, you're more than welcome to come. Or if you're just a parent or just interested in the topic, anyone's welcome. If you let me know, that would be best, but you don't have to. So it's Saturday, uh, at Immaculate Conception from 12.30 to 3. Um, I don't think my email's on the website, but you could contact anyone, and they can get you my email if you have any questions. Um, we're meeting in the trailers across from the main entrance to the church. Um, it would help if you come, because besides, like, there are some things we do differently here, obviously, and we can kind of talk about that as well. Um, so it'll be a really cool time. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, Joel has been someone who has brought just a great degree of intentionality and purpose and thoughtfulness into how our kids um, deal with spiritual formation and brought in some great models from his from his other work. So, yeah, definitely would recommend that if you'd like to 
learn more about what's going on in the back each week. Uh, Joel, why don't you go ahead and have, have kids lead us here. Thank you, kids. So, as this, again, very robust group trundles off, um, welcome again. Glad you're here. Emmaus Way is a community of people that we like to talk about ourselves as being captivated by the gospel of Jesus Christ and trying to live that out in our life together, both gathered here and throughout the week. Um, and so, that's something that, that shapes our worship together. Um, and, yeah, shapes our lives together always. Um, this is a time where we sort of have to check in on announcement type things. I imagine there might be a Durham Can related thing. Um, there is a Durham Can breakfast this Thursday at 730 at Duke Memorial. Um, we are needing to fill a table of seven, and I really need one to two more people that would be willing to come. Um, there will be a speaker from Duke, um, Luke, I always mess up. Brother Attend will be speaking. Um, you'll hear about Durham Can. It is a fundraising event. The breakfast is free, but the hope is that you would open up your checkbook. Um, if you would be interested, let me know. Talk to me tonight or send me an email. Molly at And that's Thursday morning, right? Okay. All right, thanks. Anybody else announcements-wise? If not, I'm going to have Skylar and Tim go ahead and come back up here. And just um, as they're coming up, I mean, so I'm someone who gets the privilege of, of dealing with, first of all, if you don't know that much about how Mayasway does music, each week we're inviting in either our, our lead artist, sort of in residence, Mark Williams, or a guest artist from the community is coming and leading worship. And one of the things, beautiful things that comes out of that is we have this conversation every week, a lot like our, um, our sermons, quote-unquote sermons in dialogue format and text team a group of people drives that into the week. There's a conversation that starts about music, usually on Tuesday or Wednesday of every week. Um, Tim's often a part of that and leading, and Skylar has been this week. And so this felt like a week where that just produced some really beautiful results. So I wanted to talk a little bit with Skylar, going more into the, our songs of preparation. Kind of what were you thinking about you know, putting these songs together this week? Sure. Um, well, one thing I could point out is that... Um, all of the songwriters, I think actually the Nina Simone song was written by Billy Taylor originally, but uh, most of the, all of these songs were written and or made famous by women, which is no particular statement in that, except for I just started and then all of a sudden it happened. Um, so that was, that was something that was intriguing to me about this week's set list. And um, for these two songs of preparation, Ladies of the Canyon, a Joni Mitchell song is a song that um, talks a lot about hospitality to me, um, which is what we're going to be touching on later on in the verses from Luke. Um, and Divers, the Joanna Newsom song, I thought a lot about this song 
I, I tried to look sort of like for a lyrical, like a, a narrative in the lyrics, but I kept changing my mind about is the diver, could the diver be Jesus? Is the diver the woman? Is the woman, the sinful woman speaking in the song? Um, and I think I sort of arrived at that maybe everybody takes turns talking. All the characters in the story take turns talking during the song. Um, and some of the imagery that really resonated with me and the the verses uh, was about knowledge and what it means to know someone um, and loving better and loving best and uh, and the things uh, like that that are explored in the verses. So. Yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, I think one of the things we tend to do when we look at texts together as a community is we end up focusing on different perspectives in the text, and I think these songs just drive us right into that. We're going to encounter this quote-unquote sinful woman that's going to encounter Jesus, I feel like we're getting all sorts of interesting backstories or potential backstories for that person long before we encounter in that text tonight. So I think these are fantastic to lead us into preparation. Thank you, Skylar. Thanks.
So I have to say also about this next song that uh, Tim Carlos, who's playing guitar with me tonight, introduced uh, me to it, and it's just beautiful. Joanna Newsom.
Thank you, Skylar. You know, those were really interesting texts. I'm working backwards. Joanna, Johnny Mitchell, and Skylar. Um, um, 
three, uh, three women either in positions of um, begging, even demanding hospitality or offering hospitality. And this is a, a text this week that is unique in that it produces a, a lecture about how people are received in a particular culture. It brings into issues of gender, a whole range of things. In fact, for tonight, I thought what we'd do is if you'll flip to the, the, the flip side, let's read that text before we offer each other the piece. Uh, and you'll hear many of the echoes of this text and the music that we've already done. This is Luke 7, um, 36 through uh, 50. Would anybody like to read this? Um, I'd love a, I'll be glad to read it, but if, uh, if there's a reader. Okay, great. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place with him. And a woman in the city, who was a sinner, having learned that he was eating in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar for She stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to bathe his feet with her tears and to dry them with her hair. Then she continued kissing his feet and anointing them with anointment. Now when the Pharisees who had invited him saw it, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this was who was touching him, that she is a sinner. Jesus spoke up and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Teacher, he replied, speak. A certain creditor had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts for both of them. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. And Jesus said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven, hence she has shown great love. But the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. Then he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. But those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Thanks, Brian. I have always read this text as a a complicated, coded text in a culture that I don't fully understand. And so we'll get back to that in a minute or two. Um, I, I do want to mention tonight, we have an amazing guest, uh, Kurt Rhodes, who's an old friend of mine uh, for many years, who has uh, spent, Kurt, how many years? 35 years working in the Arab world, uh, currently in Jordan. His wife, Marcia, is here. Uh, we're really delighted to hear them talk about their life, uh, the work of QuestScope, which is an amazing organization, um, as well as some thoughts on this text as well. But before we jump into that, and I get Mar- uh, Kurt up on the stool here, why don't you uh, stand up and greet each other, offer each other the peace of Christ. If you're around somebody or see somebody that you don't know, please introduce yourself. It's a great time to grab some snacks or coffee as well. And in about two minutes, I'll give this a shout and we will jump into it. So while we're resettling ourselves, um, I wanted to mention, I got to know uh, Kurt Rhodes about 20 some odd years ago. Kurt, come and sit or, and bring your food. Um, the, um, uh, there's plenty of time for eating up here. Um, let me give you a microphone 
And, um, but I got to know Kurt. It was probably, what, 20 years ago? Is that right? It's been a long time. More. Lo- longer than that. No. And um, You're older than you think. I, <laughs> I can feel it. <laughs> yeah, around here. <laughs> That's very true. Um, and one of the things that um, when I first encountered Questscope, um, the, the, the kind of the tagline for their work is uh, putting the last first. And they were doing work um, with some of the most marginalized populations in the Arab world. And they were doing it in a way that I had never heard of people doing this before, uh, particularly in a um, part of the world that is driven by religious division. They work with uh, Christian, Muslim, uh, a whole range of persons on their staff uh, together. They, they do hospitality, spirituality in a, a context that's not supposed to happen. And so I was amazingly drawn to that. Uh, in fact, I... I, I I remember saying, maybe one of the first things I said to you is, how do you hoodwink people to not be afraid of what you're doing? And, uh, because I had, not, I had not really encountered that. And so Kurt's an old friend, and uh, I'm eager for you to, um, to hear his story, to hear his reflections on a range of things. And we, th- we think we'll probably get through this fast enough, to, uh, in one sense, to have questions so that you can ask questions, not just so. me, to, to Kurt as well. But um, Kurt, one, one thing that I thought might be interesting to to start, introduce yourself and Marsha any way you want to. But um, one thing that that you haven't um, told before to make us way, and we've been doing a lot of storytelling in our community in terms of people telling their own narratives of how they ended up in a different location, how they changed their life trajectory in a certain way. And so I'd be interested to hear a little bit of your story of how you ended up in, I think, Beirut in the, the early 80s and uh, some of that story as well and kind of how that kind of formed your, um, your role and relationship and place in a world that's very distant from, from many of our lives here. Is that a good starting place? Yeah, yeah that yeah. works. Go for it. I need to figure out where I need to hold this. Is you, you, want switch, you want to switch to this one? Try that. I'm, I'm usually told you have to eat the mic, but I have with me my wife of 40 years, who is the only woman that I ever wanted to marry before 40 years and after 40 years. Would you say hi? Okay. And she's probably thinking, probably, she's probably thinking, I should have married one of those other guys at Michigan State, you know, but um, we, like I said, we were married in Michigan. We both went to Michigan State. I'm from the South. I've lost my accent. I can't even make up a good one. Um, my grandmother sat me down when I t- told her I really was going to go to Michigan to study. And she said, Curtis, if you've a mind to go up there and study, I reckon that's just fine. But don't marry one of their women. <laughs> <clears throat> and I did. But we've learned to make cornbread together, so that's you know, it's helped. We moved, we married in 1975. I did an MPH down here at the School of Public Health in, uh, at Chapel Hill. In 1981, in early February, we moved to Beirut with a two-year-old daughter and a five-month-old daughter. Beirut in 1981 was a very interesting place. 
Um, it was just coming off a war, and we didn't know that it was just going into another one. I took a position as the assistant dean in the School of Public Health at the American University of Beirut. <clears throat> and of course, you have two little girls in diapers. So Beirut had no water, once every 14 days, maybe. No electricity. Um, every night, uh, uh, gunfights in the street. And we, we used to tell our older daughter that when Arabs get married, they shoot guns at weddings, right? So one night she said to us, she said, a lot of people are getting married tonight, aren't they? <laughs> I said, yeah, it seems so. Um, in 1982, so we arrived in January, February of 81, in 1982, in June, the Israeli invasion of West Beirut uh, started. And after a couple of weeks, one morning, we learned on the radio that the U.S. Navy was evacuating Americans. So Marcia said, I think I should leave with the girls, and then you can stay here. So I drove her across the city through the green line into the other side, put them on a bus to take them to the harbor, to take them to the little boat that would take them to the Admiral Nimitz. And we didn't see each other or even communicate for three, four months. Then pre-cell phone, pre-everything days, so she didn't know was I alive or dead. And the place where the bombing, if any of you guys remember watching it on TV, where all the bombs were falling was probably half a mile from where I was hiding out. You and I are probably the only ones old enough to remember <laughs> watching it on television. But, but some of it was recorded. They back might in have the day when MTV it. showed music. Uh, all right. Yeah. MTV? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, during, that period of, or during that period of time, the university didn't give classes, so I did triage for the families of the fighters. So they had come into West Beirut from Sabra and Shatila camps, which were camps for Palestinian refugees. Um, and you know their sons or nephews or cousins or brothers were part of the PLO, so they were fighting. When that phase of the war ended and the fighters left to Damascus or to Tunis, we thought, it's over, right? So everybody went home to Sabra and Shatila camps. And over the next two or three days, somewhere between 2,000 and 3,000 people were massacred in those camps. All women and children, elderly people, and mentally and physically challenged. Well, these were people that I knew. We had, I had directed them to various levels of medical care. We had delivered some of their babies. Um, so that was a real turning point in my life. I I thought, how can this happen? How can people be so easily erased as if they never were? Um, so it took me a number of years to take those pieces and refit them in my head. So that's where Questscope got born. It took years to do the legal paperwork, but uh, to put the last first has a flip side that if you're going to put the last first, you're going to have to help the first put themselves last. So the, the science of the thing is putting the last first. The art of the thing is putting the first last. So I think you started with 
our, our journey, our sojourning journey. Talk and just <clears throat> frame for us a little bit um, the work that QuestScope has done and, and, and some of the places that you've done it over the last uh, couple of decades or so. Uh, this is a, a broad and wide story, but what, what uh, describe some of the work. Well, we work in all the places that you wanted to take vacations, right? Sudan, Yemen, um, West Bank. That's a cool place for a vacation. Uh, Syria, um, southern, south of Lebanon, uh, the place that we call Kurdistan or northern Iraq. So those are, those are the places where we do stuff. Our focus is on... Uh, youth, and that ranges for us from age 13 to age 30. And we're interested in people who've been, who've lost their chances. So you drop out of school. In the Middle East, if you drop out of school and you're out for more than a year, you can never return. It's illegal. And there's no GED curriculum. There's no alternative. There's nothing. You're out. Um, So we provide alternative education and that doesn't mean just an alternative path. It means that we're actually going to talk with you and learn what you'd like to learn and how you'd like to learn it. Are any, any educationalists in the room that might have heard of Paolo Freire and the pedagogy of the oppressed? And the, you know, So that's the kind of stuff we do with young people with education. Um, we've worked in centers for incarcerated youth in Kurdistan, in Syria, in Damascus, and we were once responsible for the entire correctional system in Jordan um, for all the programming. Um, And again, you can see the the two sides of the paper. One side is you've got to make things different for that young person, and the other side is you've got to make the policymakers and the institutional guys make it, sustain it differently for that person. You know, it, it's a deeply known to some, controversial to some, but in the U.S., um, our educational system is probably the most powerful sorting system in our culture. It's why people go crazy about where their kids go to school. Um, we, we have a system that works well, but we employ it in many ways to sort people by social class, by race, by uh, there's a whole, there's story after story and I sit in an office with people who do this research and I hear again and again and again how deeply um, reproductive education is in the U.S. But it remains a possibility. But in the Arab world, like you're, I mean, you're stepping into the place where there are no second chances. Uh, I think the term you use is, is, it, is non-formal education, or and it's a, it's a powerful idea of truly um, because there's so many people, especially in in Jordan. How how many refugees would you say are in the population of Jordan now? The Syrian ones, the Somali ones, start with the, the Iraqi ones, the yeah. Palestinians. Palestinians over a million, right? Palestinian uh, refugees? No. Um, well, Jordan gave Palestinian Jordan gave Palestinians Jordanian citizenship. Okay. But seventy to eighty percent of everybody in Jordan is a Palestinian. Right, sure. We have some Palestinians that are not quite real people, all right? And so they don't get anything, and they live, they're the people from Gaza. So they have no nationality at all. Mm-hmm. But they're still kind of Palestinians, right? So, I mean, it boggles our mind 
here to imagine the movement of people in that world. Like, for example, just the movement out of Syria would be what the population of Michigan and Ohio or something like that. I mean, give us some framing of that. Well, at the, at the beginning of the 2011 crisis, Syria had 22 million people. That's like three North Carolinas, right? Is that, am I okay on that? Uh, 11 million of those people are now homeless. The 8 million that have stayed inside Syria have been made homeless seven or eight times because you just move and then more bombing and more fighting happens, so you move again. The 4 million that have left Syria who are in Turkey, Lebanon, and Jordan primarily, but some in Iraq and some in Egypt, um, they are refugees in the sense that they're not inside their border. That's 4 million, you know? But they're not refugees unless they have a United Nations High Commission for Refugee card. Mm -hmm. And without that card, you're not legally protected. Your kids can't go to school. You can't get medical care. So most people outside Syria who are sort of refugees are really sort of not. Oh, wow. I mean, the numbers are absolutely staggering. And I think this is actually why I've always <clears throat> wanted us to be in conversation with Kurt, because there's so many times in settings of faith and just life and people who care, um, it's easy to hear just overwhelming statistics or numbers like that and kind of go, wow, that, that's bad. Uh, it is bad. But without a sense of any responsiveness to the shock or the frustration or whatever emotion is stretched up. And I think that's what to me has been so um, incredibly motivating about your work with Questcope is that you have located it in places that um, have, uh, have had unbelievable conflict uh, and has been so incredibly transformative. I mean, talk about your role. This, this, uh, uh, you take these questions anywhere you want to, but I, I think it's you have fit into a world um, in, a, in a culture which would rightfully be probably nervous about um, any of the labels that we might throw at you, like uh, um, Christian, uh, white male, American, any of the things that that uh, that are markers of either uh, a colonial perspective, a judging perspective. Uh, how have you functioned in a world where? Um, and I'll say this about Kurt, which is amazes me, is that you have been so deeply um, embedded in the cultural context. But when I visited Amman probably five years ago. You had just finished negotiating a wedding between the two, uh, the two families. I mean, the, the knowledge of the cultural context to be, over, to be able to do that is mind-boggling to me. So talk a little bit about how you have found your way, found your place, found your identity in a, a really distinctly different setting than Mallard Creek, North Carolina. Yeah, it's a bit different than Mallard <laughs> it's Creek. It's very different from Mallard Creek. You guys know Creek, where Mallard Creek is? It's between Charlotte and Concord. There's a big barbecue every year in the fall. If you've never been to the Mallard Creek barbecue, you ought to go. Yeah. Oh, dear. Well, Mallard Creek was actually an okay preparation for the Arab world. Because <laughs> we had 500 people who lived there, and we were all relatives. <laughs> all right? And each one made it his or her business to know what the other one was thinking or doing the day before they knew that they were thinking or doing it. And we had already decided about it, you know, judged it. So um, it was 
when I came to the university, when Chapel Hill, I came to UNC as a freshman, and my dorm had a thousand, it was James dorm, first year of James dorm, a thousand freshman men. Well, that was twice as many people as I knew were in the world. And it wasn't related to any of them. So it actually prepared me a lot for the Arab world. Um, what would you say, Marcia? How, how would you describe my integration? Because I, I did integrate uh, Yunan, Thrawini words. One thing that helps is to put it in my father's words, God rest his soul, you know, is that I like Arabs. You know? I just really like them. Um, I like the way they think. I like the, what they eat. I like how they think. I like their issues. I like the way that they think about issues. Mm -hmm. So when you come into a culture and you want to learn because you like, then people are delighted to open the door so you can learn more. Because, yes, dear? Although you said you couldn't really like them until you really could hate them at the same time. Well, you're getting too honest, okay? <laughs> <clears throat> we, have, we have all kinds of interns. Yeah. And usually they're all kinds of, from all kinds of places, mostly Harvard places, right? And anybody from Harvard here, I'm going to say some very bad things about Harvard. Generally, people at Harvard... There's one, there's All right. one Harvard PhD behind you. All right. so just, is that right? All right. Generally, people from places like Harvard... But okay, not Harvard. But not Harvard. They know the answer. They do. You know, they, you can, they can sort you out. And so they're, it's difficult to think that there's a different question than the one they have an answer to. Mm -hmm. So we, we get a lot of uh, people from places like Harvard, okay? Sure. And everybody says, after two, three weeks of being there and being hosted and kissed and, you know, the whole business, I just love Arabs. And I say, you can't possibly love them. You haven't been here long enough to have them go up your nose, mm -hmm. you know? But it works the same for Americans. I see Arab friends who come here, and they say, I just love Americans. And I say, how many do you really know? You know, after you get to know another, the other, and you accommodate them for who they are and not who, for who you want them to be, then you can say, I just really love you. So that's the... And that love that you have... Um, have um, Developed, grown, um, filled with thousands and thousands of realistic circumstances. And I've been sitting in your office, and you, uh, um, you know. You're not getting ready to out me. No, no, not okay, quite yet. Good, but, uh, you know, firing off a few, uh, few uh, superlatives as you headed to, um, to, to meet with. Um, the government in Jordan because of, I mean, you, you have been deeply embedded in life, politically, socially, in so many ways, and it, it's just, uh, it, it's, it was amazing for me to see you be able to do that with such a deep love for that culture. Now, we live in a, we live in a world where um, probably the, the Arab world is probably more caricatured, 
more frightened of, more. I had an, I just experienced um, maybe a year or two after 9-11. I was traveling on a series of one-way tickets uh, with a, a woman from the Middle East. Uh, and I've never been searched more, looked at more, stopped more. Every item that I owned, I mean, these are experiences that most of us don't have very often. What do we not know? Tell us some things that we should know about the world that you live in that is probably mangled in the media that we see and the, the truisms and the simplistic statements. Uh, and, and especially even in this uh, Luke 7 text, um, um, one of the things that you've taught me so much about is how much hospitality courses through uh, the veins of, of Jordan and other places that you've been. Tell us a little bit about the things that we should know about of that culture, both as people who read text, but people who want to be deeply connected probably to an ethnicity that's deeply marginalized in the United States now, but then also a wider context that is filled with unbelievable need given the number of wars that have been fought just in the last decade or two. Mimi, when he asked the question that's three pages long, what do you do with that, do you know? You get to pick your favorite part, go ahead, or um, ignore it entirely. No, it's okay. Uh, I'll, I'll try to work on this thing from Luke, yeah, okay? Yeah, sure. Um, <clears throat> A thing that you do need to remember is that Arab culture is a traditional culture, but it's becoming modern. What's the difference between a modern culture and a traditional culture? A modern culture looks to the future for validation, and youth are the key to the future. A traditional culture looks to the past. If it was good for the prophet, it must still be good. The traditional culture says, if it worked there, why would you want to change it? So immediately you can begin to pick up some of the stresses on Syrians just like you, who have degrees in engineering, there are some who have studied law, there are some you know, doctors. So they have, they've come into contact with a Western modern culture, and they're trying to figure out what part of my traditional culture do I want to keep? Because it's nice. You know? When I walk into a room, everybody stands up. You know? Because of the gray. That doesn't happen anymore in America. That is a traditional culture. It honors the past. So, um, there's, a, there's a lot of interesting stuff, but it causes interesting things. So, in Luke... When it says, it says it very innocuously, there was a woman in the city who heard that he was in the Pharisee's house, and she grabs an alabaster joy and it shows up. <clears throat> There's a lot of tension in that room. These women don't go into rooms where men are eating. Second of all, she's obviously not a household servant. You know, she's an outsider. So how did she get in there? Well, probably Simon knows her. You know what that means? Okay. And if Simon doesn't know her like that, certainly some of Simon's buddies are there who know her like that. And that's why she was invisible. Because if you say, well, you know, she's a sinner, then everyone would say, oh, really, Simon, how do you know? So she's not there. But the tension in that room... 
You can hardly read this story and not think, why didn't it blow up? Because everybody knows that somebody's in the room who shouldn't ought to be here. And the longer she's in the room, the more danger she brings to me. So then they sublimate it. You know, they push it. Very traditional, right? You know, we're going to put it on somebody, make him a scapegoat. So she goes through this very strange thing with this alabaster jar of ointment, which in general you'd put that on dead people. Okay. So that's kind of strange. Um, And then she's the kind of woman that, uh, here's the scapegoat. If he was a prophet, if he was really a good man, if he was really, you know, one of us, then he would have known. So at least they gave him the benefit of the doubt that he wasn't exactly like them and knew her on the side, right? Sure. So at least he would have known. And so it's obvious that he's not a good guy either. So what they just did, they did something that you do in traditional culture. You've got to blame somebody. Do we blame people in modern culture? Well, we blame our, our parents, you know, and, and the child within. You know, we've got very complicated psychological mechanisms. But in traditional culture, you don't, your mechanisms are not complicated at all. You read the Scarlet Letter, right? You've got to have a, uh, there's got to be a goat to, to escape it. Sure. So all of this stuff is going on. And so, I mean, if, and everybody there, if you'll let me make everybody guilty, everybody there has probably paid this woman. And then he's talk. Jesus is talking to her, and, or he's creating this conversation with Simon about payment. Well, he's getting too close to the quick because everybody knows you can buy her. You know, so Simon, if you're forgiven a little bit of money and somebody else is forgiven a lot of money, this is not a casual conversation. This is up Simon's nose in a very traditional way, you know? Sure. So then you get, you know, get the rest of the story for our, for our benefit because we wouldn't possibly understand it 2,000 years later. The moral is if you're forgiven little, uh, if you're forgiven little, you love little. If you're forgiven much, you love much. But the tension in this thing and the male-female stuff going on and how could she possibly be there unless everybody knew who she was and the servants don't let women in like that. But she's obviously got something expensive, so maybe one of the guys brought her. Well, you can't be the servant and stop the guest. You'll lose your job, if not your head. So everybody's nervous. In a traditional culture, everybody has to keep the rules or none of us are safe. And in that situation, nobody was safe. And it's interesting, too, that there's an indictment that cuts toward uh, not just traditional culture, but traditional culture's connection to religious culture in this. And I think that's, I remember sitting with your staff and uh, all uh, uh, highly trained people, uh, young 20-something, early 30-something Arabs, people that would fit very well in this room. Um, and um, and, 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 and a, 
amazing moment. I, I think you were there that day. I was sitting with them, and they were asking about our religious culture in the, in the U.S. and how it gets in the way at times uh, to do the kind of good that they want to do in their own culture. And then, I don't know if this was an unguarded moment or they talked this way all the time, but they talked very strongly about their religious culture and the frustrations they had as younger people in terms of how that culture at times is fights against the very types of missional impulses that they have, uh, and I think that's an that's an interesting part of this story as well. That that um, people steeped in their religion miss a concept like hospitality, or or miss the awkward nuances of their lives that spill across uh, what they would deem moral and immoral. Well, certainly one of the things that sets us apart from almost any organization I know is that we take the spiritual nature of disadvantaged, marginalized youth very seriously. Mm-hmm. Now, we're going to have to do the understanding of spiritual nature of people by a process of exclusion. So draw with me in your mind's eye a circle that's really a pie and make slices out of it. And then we're going to pick up each slice of a person, you know, the, the pie in their life. And this one we could deal with it, uh, through psychology. And this one we can understand them through sociology. And this one we can do anthropology. If economics rhymed with it, we do economicology. So we have, you know, all the ologies. And when you finish with this, there's always one piece of pie left that nobody knows really what to do with it. But everybody knows that you can't be explained away by all the other ologies. So something is there. And I actually had to do this, not with a Harvard person, but with a University of Maryland atheist, you know, very extremely educated and articulate, um, who was hunting me, you know, for using even the word spiritual. So at the end of our discussion, when I got all the pie pieces off the plate except the one, I said, Forrest, that thing that is my mystery the mysterious me that you cannot know. That's what I mean by the spiritual part of a person. And the other stuff that we do cannot discount that. Are you in or out? And he goes, I don't like this, but I'm in. <laughs> so, you know, to, to tell the other stories and to bring in other ideas so that people can see that no matter how I need to classify you, no matter how I need to fix you, no matter how I need to do something for you, there's something there. If it's spiritual, it's going to call on me to change in order for me to know you. It's really powerful. Really powerful. <clears throat> to, to, you know, put the cookies on a lower shelf here, okay? The... Um, In 1997, two young men who were 14, Ahmed and Ayad, came to me and said, "Uh, Ustez, teacher, we're really enjoying learning to read and write. We're We're in something called street education in the street. And they were learning to read and write, and that was really cool. But they said, what we really want to do is go to vocational training school and learn how to repair mufflers. Otherwise, we're going to be making tea for the rest of our lives for the guys who make who repair mufflers. Can we go to vocational school? Not being an educationalist, 
Okay? I, I've got most of the things done in my life because I wasn't the ist that should have, I should have been, right? So I didn't know I couldn't do something, so I went to the um, Vocational Training Corporation. You cannot come back to vocational school without a 10th grade diploma. You can't get that if you don't have a 6th grade le school labor certificate. You can't get that if you didn't finish 3rd grade. Well, they dropped out at 3rd grade. Well, we're sorry, there's nothing for them. They could go to literacy classes. Literacy classes are filled with people who are 70 years old who never got to learn to read and write, and they're mostly women, and they have a different style than a 14-year-old shucker and jiver. He wouldn't last, or they wouldn't last 30 nanoseconds. So they're doomed. So remember how Questscope got started? I thought, why are they doomed? You know, somebody pulled the trigger in 1982, and somebody pulled the policy trigger here. Why do we have to accept this? <clears throat> so you do have to accept it unless you're exceedingly patient. So for two years, I drank coffee uh, and met with the number three person in our Department of Education. And we got, uh, it was the old what if syndrome. What if we did this? What if somebody did this? So, you know, what if somebody wanted to learn, how would they learn? You know, what could you do to shrink a curriculum, a tenure curriculum into two? What do you keep? What do you not keep? <clears throat> so we went through all that as conversations. And then we started the uh, playing around with that curriculum and the methodology of Paolo Freire that you, you really want to draw out the critical consciousness of people. And at a certain point, uh, one day, hardly anybody was left in the street education classes, which is not good. So I went to see what happened. What happened down here? Well, actually, uh, we started talking about your identity, and we used maps, because if you're a Jordanian, that's your identity. You live in a place, and this is the map of Jordan. If you're Syrian, because we had some Syrians, you live here. If you're an Egyptian, and of course, if you live in Syria, that's a republic, but if you live in Jordan, it's a kingdom. Well, the next day, everybody was gone. Why? Boring. It was boring. So I said, how do we get them back? He, lots of conversation, and uh, finally one of the staff said, I think that we need to fly them over the city in glider planes. Right. You have a phrase in English like pigs can fly? There's a commercial that I saw about Doritos, that if a pig flies, so the kid puts a pig on a rocket. Um, not an appropriate illustration for the Middle East, mind you. Okay. Quite true. Quite true. So, <laughs> so I thought, we need to, uh, we're going to have to do something, right? So let's go talk to your cousin at the military airport about Google Earth was taking pictures in those days. And so glider planes did exist. It went right over rooftops. So we went to see his cousin, and he pulled out two huge rule books. And we sat for an hour when he read through every rule. And he finished, and he said, well, there's no rule against kids flying over the city in glider planes because nobody ever thought they would. So you can do it. So I paid $15 a head for the gas. We threw 20 or 30 or 40 kids over the city. And they never came down because for the first time, this piece of paper with this line was that piece of asphalt. And they could see their friends and wave. 
So this is a reality, just like that's a reality. So this, you know, vicarious, uh, um, concrete and abstract connection. So this was really exciting. So <clears throat> the 100 kids came back and 100 new ones came. So this is actually not super pleasant. So I went to the minister, the third one in the Ministry of Education, and I said, I, I have really good news. I have 200 kids who want to come back to school. And he looked at me and said, that's illegal. You know that. We can never take them back. What are you up to? And I said, you know it's illegal, and I know it's illegal, but the newspapers will eat you. Now, that's not even a veiled threat, okay? And I'm not even an Arab. So just as he opened his mouth to say, you're finished here in Jordan or something like that, I said, but we've been working for two years on a program that if you would certify that program, here the general education equivalence thing beginning to happen, if you would certify the program, then the dropout rate will drop by 1% and you get all the credit. <clears throat> you have to figure out where is the battle. And choosing the battle is really a spiritual issue. You only get one chance. You only get one fight. And you've got to be sure that this is the benefit that this person needs. So it's, that's why I mentioned earlier, some of it's an art, some of it's a science. But all of it has to happen. So long story short, yes, he they accepted that policy change. We got three more policy changes. I've got two more to go. It's only been 10 years, guys. That's pretty fast, right? Well, I remember the last time I was there, um, you had gotten a call from the government to, there was a, a group of women in a particular city that they were, they were largely invisible, like our character here, but the, the, the government had some interest in their being supported, educated, and it was an amazing testimony that uh, they called you guys to say, what could you do? And, and you know, one of the things I think was amazing is, you, you know, a lot of times when we're moved in life and we want to do something, we don't have an answer. What, what would you do? You had a very powerful answer to that. I don't know if you remember that circumstance, but it was, uh, it was fun to watch that happen. It was also fun for me to see the level of trust that Questcope and you had that you, you were that call and were offered that opportunity, so... Curtis, you've, you have had... Can I just throw some... Yeah, yeah please. Another yeah. Step. I want to take you inside Syria for just a minute, because that's, that's where the stuff is going on. Sure. We have a... Uh, did I ever bring Roy here? Did you guys ever meet Roy? Does anybody here know Roy? I don't know that Emmaus Way was Emmaus Way when Roy okay. was here. Yeah. Roy is a Syrian whose father liked Roy Rogers, so he named his son Roy. So he's not from Durham or New Bern, or any place like that, but he's still named Roy. Uh, Roy Ramiz Musalli. Roy and I have been close for 35 years, and he is essentially, you know, I have two, um, I got older, you know, so I've got succession going on. So Roy is the Syrian successor, and we have a Jordanian successor. Um, that, so he's taken over responsibility for Syria. He has 1,600 staff and volunteers the country so every morning he has to wake up and think I wonder what they're doing today you know how do we support them and they are responsible for uh, water clothing shelter housing food medicine for 200,000 of these internally displaced people 
the <clears throat> this stuff that happens. A month or so ago, in a place called Zabadani, do you guys ever follow the stuff? The fighting in Syria, enough to know the names of the small towns. Anyway, there's a small town. It's a resort town. We used to go and, and spend... It's got apple trees and apricot trees and all kinds of stuff. High, cool, so you skate from Damascus. Um, really nice people. And the rebel army of a particular flavor, because there's 58 flavors, okay, finally was defeated there, and the Syrian army was going to exterminate all 350 of them. So their buddies north of Homs said... If you take those 350, we have 25,000 civilians that we will slaughter if you slaughter those guys. So the upshot was that the Syrian army said, okay, we will let these guys out and don't slaughter the 25,000 Syrian civilians. Deal. Next morning, 15,000 women and children were escorted to the city limits to get them out of there by their captors. Mm -hmm. So now, sun comes up, and there's 15,000 more women and children to feed, clothe, house. And these people are not going to wait for you to tell them what to do. So they pick out places. So 2,500 of them walked to the school, where that's one of the schools that Roy has reestablished. And so that morning, it became a shelter for 2,500 people instead of a school. But you still do the school also. So this is the kind of stuff that everybody faces, but uh, Roy is just phenomenal in his ability not to be overwhelmed by overwhelming circumstances. Just amazing. It's a great story. And it, again, it echoes um, the kind of volume of need and complexity of politic that probably goes way past any thought that we have in that context. So, uh, Roy, I thank you for uh, Roy. Is uh, I remember sitting in Mad Hatters with him and uh, having such an amazingly delightful conversation and incredible questions that he asked. Um, Kurt, the rumor is that you're going to be back in um, back this way in December at some point. Is that is that true? It's, it's likely. Yeah, we, we, I, I know that, uh, I don't know if a lot of people know that Chansey worked for, Chansey, how long did you work for Questco? Three years. Three years. So uh, we've had multiple contacts to your work, and it's always a delight to have you with us. And it's inspiring. It's also deeply challenging, uh, and we're thankful for that. I'm, I'm thankful for you and Marcia because you really have done, I think, some of the things that you talk about now in terms of bringing multiple faiths together, uh, doing spirituality and compassion in that context are things that people have started to migrate to, but 30 years ago, un absolutely staggeringly unheard of. And the sense of commitment and love that you've had to um, a context that is far from Mallard Creek, despite the analogy, uh, and your willingness to stay after the war in Beirut, the bombing in Beirut, many of those things is an incredible testimony. I, I always find when I'm, I'm, whether it's having a whiskey with you or uh, making salsa. In he your, outed uh, me. I knew he would out me. 
Okay. So single malt. My one, my one, my most offensive cultural thing is when I flew to uh, Jordan to spend some time with uh, Kurt. I asked a friend. I said, "What should I pack?" And uh, the answer was, "Don't bring a lot of clothes. <laughs> Fill your suitcase with single malt scotch." <laughs> and so here I was, the first time I've, I think, well, I've been to Egypt, but I was flying into Jordan, and my bag was so full of whiskey that it just clinked, <laughs> clink, 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 clink. I thought, "Am I going to be? I'm going to spend 20 years in jail?" And then, and then we got there, and then I, I, now I'm on you. Uh, and Kurt took me to uh, what would it have been the uh, kind of the duty free or embassy store, and said, "You." Because I have an airline ticket and a passport, I can shop there, right? And you said on certain days, you can only buy one, right? But, uh, but on really good days, you can buy one of any genre. <laughs> and that was the day that we arrived. And so uh, it was a very good day and a very good night at the it's Rose household. <laughs> ex- exploitation of guests. <laughs> so, that is, so now you're fully outed. But we thank you so much for being here, for talking about the text talking about your life, uh, so many things, and look forward to, to seeing you again. Skylar, I want to invite you to lead us into confession and absolution tonight. Thank you for doing that. And Kurt, thank you, my friend. Thank it's you. good to have you here. So I'm in the unenviable position of one trying to, uh, trying to connect these amazing stories to the music we're going to hear. Um, on the one hand, and the other unenviable position I'm in is I have to explain why we're doing a Taylor Swift song uh, today. So, so I'm going to pass that one off and let Skylar answer that one. Um, but I will say, uh, in, in sort of uh, looking at the text that we discussed uh, briefly, um, I, I just think that this song of confession that you chose, Skylar, is so beautiful. I wish I knew how it would feel to be free. I, like, I think of the woman in that story... Um, being in this place where she kind of has to have other people speak for her because she has no voice. She's in a culture where she has no power. Um, so uh, this song to me is a really beautiful song of confession to echo that. Talk to me about Taylor Swift. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things I think uh, that is a beautiful gift, sort of a, a gift of hospitality that a pop song gives is such a catchy... It's the first time you hear it. It's so accessible. You immediately remember the words. Everybody can sing along. Um, and that's that's kind of like an open table to me. You know, it's it's very... <laughs> that's, that's part of my argument for Taylor Swift. Um, the other argument for Shake It Off is that uh, it feels very much to me... When you spoke about the tension that was felt in the room... You know, when this situation happened and this invisible woman was becoming visible and um, and involving Jesus in this conversation, um, it really... I'm just going to completely lose my train of thought because I don't know the lyrics in front of me. Um, but she, you know, they sort of shake off this tension. There's this release of that through the forgiveness that, that Jesus offers her. Um that's my argument for Taylor Swift. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's sort of like an undoing of the social order mm-hmm. in a sense, which is, which is in a way what, what sh- I mean, that's actually a lot of what Taylor Swift's music is about in a lot of ways is sort of an undoing of the social order where the males are in power um, and she's upended the entire music industry as a female. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. great choice. All right. Mm-hmm. 
So I know all of you have that 1989 album in your cars right now, but I really think that uh, it's going to sound great if everybody sings along on this one. I think we can do it. Stay at least 
that Taylor Swift could be gospel and I would be like have this religious experience and be moved right now I would have laughed about an hour ago but thank you Uh, 
Thank you so much. Um, because I think that's what the table's about, right? The place where we can come and shake it off and know that God's grace and love is present. Um, and I think that that is probably what happened in the room with the woman as she was wiping Jesus' feet with her hair and was a sinful woman in the night that all the men knew. Um, she was able to shake it off and shake off what she had been placed inside within society's constructs of what society said who she was and what she was about and to live in the love and light of God. And I don't know about you, but I think I need places like that where I can shake it off. Um, And so tonight, we're going to come to the table, shake it off, sing some Taylor Swift, break bread for one another, share the cup with each other, The table is open for anyone, Um, and I think that's a really radical, beautiful thing and a reason why we should celebrate and sing and know that we are God's beloved, and that is enough, Um, and Taylor Swift can be church. So come to the table, break bread, share the cup with each other tonight.